I've got a couple of different uh, messages that I'm just going to bounce around in between today. Um, but the Lord's been just doing a lot in me. And uh, I don't know about y'all, I always start, as soon as it hits like Christmas season, so right after Thanksgiving, I'm immediately in Isaiah. It's like the Lord draws me to it. So I start in Isaiah, and then over the course of December, I'll kind of move into uh, Luke and uh, Matthew, other places. So uh, we're going to start in Isaiah 9 today. This is maybe one of my, thank you, one of my favorite passages as it relates to Christmas of any of them, Isaiah 9. So it's going to be really cool. Let me read some stuff that I've been kind of writing and then we'll go into it. Uh, for generations now, we have built a culture that is guided by what I'm going to call the big things. Guided by the big things. And I, I believe this is a side effect of what I've previously taught on, which is what I call short-termism or short-term vision. Okay? If you've been here, maybe you've heard me teach this. I'm going to kind of give you a backstory into that. So, if you haven't heard it, no worries. Um, short-term vision. That is, we process everything through the filter of how does this affect the here and now without giving one thought into the long-term result of our decisions or actions. Okay, let me say this one more time. So we have a culture that's built on big things, big ideas, big careers, big stuff. And the reason I believe we have that is because what we really have is short-term vision. Everything that we do, every decision we make, the only filter we go through is, how does this affect me right now? You know what I'm saying? So if I, if I bought a brand new Lexus, it would be unbelievable for me right now. However, long-term, terrible decision. I can't afford a brand new Lexus right? And even if I could, now I can't give my daughter the stuff she needs. You know, so it, things make sense in the short term, and a lot of times we'll make those decisions because it makes sense in the short term, and we don't think about how does this affect my great-grandkids. Okay. Having a here and now mindset, and I know this is a lot of review, but I'm going into some new stuff. I'm just kind of giving a review leading up to it. Having a here and now mindset is something that religion and the world system have in common. So religion says we are running out of time, so go as fast as possible. And the world says this is all about me, so do things as fast as possible. And, and just to be clear, those descriptions are definitely interchangeable. Okay, I could say religion says this is all about me, so do things as fast as possible. Okay, When you think like this, it's a breeding ground for immorality as a whole, but it's a breeding ground for the worship of the gods of career, money, fame, relationships, narcissism, and yes, religion. And it's so interesting how so many people can be a part of a body of Christ that is guided by a 66-book Bible detailing how God is nothing but long-term postured and be exclusively short-term postured. If you read through Genesis all the way through Revelation, you know what Revelation 13 says? It says, Jesus is the lamb that was slain. And I teach this all the time. Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. So when Genesis 1 hits the scene, before God creates anything, he has in mind Jesus on a cross. You're, at, at that point, you're talking about thousands and thousands, and then if you're theological and you're an old earth person, which means you believe the days in Genesis represented billions of years, however many years, then you're talking about millions of years. But a huge chunk of time between when Genesis 1 happens and when Jesus happens, and yet with everything that God does from the very beginning, he has in mind generations that aren't even thought of yet. That's what the whole scripture is about. In fact, at the end of Revelation, how does the book of the Bible end? It ends with, behold, I see new creation. Are any of us living in new creation yet? No. So when John writes that 2,000 years ago, give or take, when he writes that, he has in mind a reality that we, in 2020, haven't even gotten close to yet. So all of scripture... And all of Christianity and all of Yahweh 
is focused on long-term effect and long-term reality and long-term posture. Our culture today is focused on this here, right now, what I need, how is this going to affect me, and we'll figure it out along the way. Y'all with me? Awesome. Okay. So, um, we have made the slogan of our lives. I've heard this growing up so many times. We've made the slogan of our lives, don't sweat the small stuff. How many of you have ever heard that? Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. And become completely, and I say this in a scholarly way, not a slang way, but become completely ignorant to the fact that the big stuff is made up of a bunch of small stuff. Man, just don't sweat the small stuff. Well, what do you think the big stuff's made of? The small stuff. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So nothing big came to be on its own. The way you get something big is by consistently doing something small. For example, every believer agrees with the statement, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where we start diverging is when we start asking, how? Your your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Okay, how are we going to do that? And then you got all these streams going in all different directions on how we're going to do that. And most of them in, in America end with, we're not, we're going to get out of here and everything's going to be blown up. But for the ones that believe what, what Scripture writes, which is his kingdom coming and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, then I believe that the way that we're going to do this is very different than how a lot of people see that we're going to do this today. And the difference is, is whether you're viewing things long-term or whether you're viewing things short-term, okay? So for most today, that looks like getting as many people to repeat a prayer as possible, which is awesome. That's great. For me, personally, it looks like being a good husband, a good dad, and giving the ministry what's left after that. No amens, which I didn't expect that. That's okay. Right? So if I, if I said, man, how are we going, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, is it? how are we going to do that? We need to start this ministry. We need to do this. 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 And if you came to me and said, well, how are we going to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I would look at you and say, I'm going to be a good dad. And that doesn't get the praise. That sure don't get me Instagram followers. I don't have them anyway because I don't have Instagram. So you can't find me on there. But. That don't get me followers, that don't get me book deals, that don't get us a million people showing up to church, but it does call the kingdom of heaven to reign on earth as it is in heaven. So I've got to make the decision, am I going to see the fulfillment of the prayer that Jesus prayed, or am I going to see a facade that's labeled as the fulfillment of the prayer that Jesus prayed? I choose the real thing. If I'm choosing the real thing, it's going to take time, it's going to take consistency, and it's going to take me not caring what people think about me or my name being known while I'm alive. I know this isn't popular messages. I'm called to bring the kingdom of heaven into the earth. That's what I'm called to do, right? And I'm called to bring you into alignment of Scripture. That's what we're doing. So everyone agrees. For example, again, on being successful. If I say, do you want to be successful? You would say, yeah, absolutely. I want to be successful. Me too. But where we start diverging again is when you start asking, how are we going to be successful? Okay? So for most, that means working hard to advance a career and making a good bit of money. It's not a bad thing. For me, again, me personally, It means living in such a way that my daughter knows exactly who Jesus is because dad looks so much like him. Okay? And my plan to be financially successful, you ready? Tithe. Well, man, bro, more brother, how you going to fund retirement? I don't know, I'm going to (laughs) tithe. I mean, you know what I'm saying? He, he said, test me in this and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven. So I am test, I'm testing him and have been testing him. And guess what? 
He has thrown open the floodgates of heaven every single time and poured out a blessing many times we didn't know what to do with. Many times we had to sit around and ask, the Lord has blessed us with this. What do we do with it? And let me say like this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if he didn't, even if we tithe consistently the rest of our lives and we're broke and never had one thing and never pushed through in anything in life and always drove bad cars and all that stuff, guess what? I would still tithe, I would still be faithful, and I would still tell you to do the same. All of our issues today, I believe, and I've said this before, we're getting into Isaiah, I promise, this is all review. All of our issues today, I believe, could be solved by fathers being image bearers in their own household. Let me say this one more time for all the dads listening. All of our issues today, I believe, this is just me, could be solved by fathers being image bearers in their own household. I think if we spent as much energy as we have trying to get somebody elected in the White House on being a good dad, it wouldn't matter who's in the White House. So that just felt good. I've been holding that one for a few weeks. Your, your job, your dreams, and I said this this week in a little post I did, but y'all just track with me. Your job, your dreams, your calling, your career, etc. mean absolutely nothing unless they are easily and often laid down for the small stuff. I mean, if somebody asked me what my dream is, my dream, my dream is for this church to thrive. And by thrive, I mean everybody be full of the Spirit. Everybody have a thriving relationship with Jesus. Everybody have a thriving secret place. If that's, that's my dream. However, there are consistent times that I have to lay down pursuing that dream to pursue his feet. And in pursuing his feet, all of a sudden I start seeing the dream be fulfilled. Y'all with me? Okay. So, so furthermore, we desperately need to redefine what the big and small stuff even is. Okay? Here's the big stuff. If you want a real definition, this is what the big stuff is. It's your relationship with Yahweh. It's your holiness. It's your spouse. And it's your kids. That's the big stuff. Okay? And if you're single today, take notes. Because it's coming. Okay? Here's the small stuff. Career, money, possessions, your phone, social media, social media, okay, fame, etc. I mean, I, 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 I would, I'm gonna dare you right now. I'm gonna dare you over the month of December to delete Facebook and delete Instagram and see what happens. I, I dare you. I dare you. I almost pay you. I'm not, but I'd almost do it. Some, some of y'all are mad. Some of y'all never have peace. You're always anxious. You're always mad. And you know why? Because you, all you do is scroll. Some of y'all watching this on Facebook right now. Keep the, that on. <laughs> but <laughs> don't turn that. But after this is over, and no, I'm just good. You can watch it on the app. You can watch it on the website. It's, it's amazing to me. We get to, so we take Veda to the park all the time. And... Um, <laughs> It's unbelievable how many, and if you're one of these parents, there's grace, okay? So don't take this, don't be offended. But, um, Lord. But anyway, it, there's so many parents that will be sitting on the bench just, just doing this right here. And their kids are over there playing. And I'm like, we only get this one time. You get one shot. That's it. One shot. I sure am not going to waste my shot on this. You know what I'm saying? T y'all, See, y'all looking for temptation to be the devil saying, hey, why don't you go murder that person that just cuts you off? That's not what the devil's coming. You know what the devil's saying? He's saying, hey, you haven't looked at Facebook in a few hours. I wonder what so-and-so's doing. And then you pick up your phone, and all of a sudden your kid's playing in the floor with a completely absent parent while you're present in something that's not even real. I'm, pa I'm passionate about this, and I'm 29. My generation is the generation that does this. We, we've got we to shift this. If it, an absent father, guess what absent fathers produce? Absent fathers. 
So generation after generation after generation after generation is about to be held captive by absence because we refuse to turn off our phones. Your job. If you're off of work and you're off the clock, turn your phone off and spend time with the people that you live with. They can wait. And if they can't, quit. Because it ain't worth it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm... We, we've got to shift this. I could teach on the big things that, you know, the leaves are for the healing of the nations and angels swarming in our room and seraphim swarming in our room. I believe the way we get to that is by dads and moms and sons and daughters learning how to honor what the Lord has allowed us to lead and honor the place that the Lord has allowed us to be in. And that stewardship leads to your kingdom. Prove it. Awesome. I'd love to prove that right now. Matthew 13 Matthew 13, here's what Jesus says. Now, this contradicts a lot, but I I don't know why, but it does. This is what Jesus, don't turn there. I'm going to go to Isaiah 9, but I'm just, 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 you know. Jesus taught them a parable. He said, heaven's kingdom realm, this is the Passion Translation, can be compared to the tiny mustard seed. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to the tiny mustard seed that a man takes and plants in his field. Although the smallest of all the seeds, he's talking about the kingdom. It begins how? The smallest of all the kingdoms. All right? Although the smallest of all the seeds, it eventually grows into the greatest of garden plants becoming a tree for the birds to come and build their nest in its branches. The biggest kingdom begins in the smallest way. Then he taught them another parable. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to yeast that a woman takes and blends into three measures of flour and then waits until all the dough rises. So how is the Lord going to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord across the earth as the waters cover the sea, for example? How is he going to do that? He's going to take a handful of people and plant them in the dough of creation as yeast. And as the yeast rises, all of a sudden, all the creation is going to find itself affected by the small amount of yeast that he planted within it. So, so if you look at, for example, the church, you look at this church or your family or who you are at your job, etc. You look at this and you say, well, man, that's small. It must be the kingdom because that's how it starts. It doesn't start huge. It starts as a small, seemingly insignificant thing that when it is consistent, and when it grows and when it mature, it, it becomes the kingdom of which, he says, birds can come and nest in. What is he saying? It becomes a tree that people can come find home in. How did God reign in his kingdom? A baby in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is tiny, tiny. It's a blip on the map. In fact, if you want a real fun study... Do y'all know how um, we always tell the Christmas story and we always say there was no room for them in the inn? And immediately you think of like Motel 6 or something, right? Bethlehem didn't have any hotels. It was too small. It's too small, okay? So all of our mangers and all of our stories that have hotels in it, wrong. Um, also, Jesus being born in a barn, probably not accurate, okay? His parents go into Bethlehem. And the way that the houses were structured back then was there would be an upper floor. If you watch the movie Star, the cartoon, it gets it real accurate, actually. But there would be an upper floor where they would live. And then on the bottom floor, it would be the, the so-called barn or, or where the uh, manger would have been. Okay, So when they go to an inn, what they're really going to is their relatives. And they're saying, hey, let us live. And they're saying, hey, we ain't got any room. But you can stay in the downstairs barn. And that's where Jesus is born. But Jesus is born in Bethlehem, insignificant city. He's born to a 16-year-old virgin, roughly. And when he's born, he's not placed in some angelic throne, you know, 
baby crib. He's placed in a feeding trough. Totally insignificant. The Savior of the earth. That Genesis 1, when it says, God said, Jesus, almost every theologian would agree on this, Jesus was actually the one that spoke the words, let there be light. That God inspired the idea of light and then brought it into completion through Jesus. How do we know that? Because John 1 says, there wasn't anything that wasn't created except through him. Jesus, the word. So the one that spoke creation into existence is now laying in a feeding trough in a seemingly insignificant moment. And that's how God decided to bring in his kingdom. So whatever your life looks like right now, it might seem, this isn't even my message, it might seem insignificant. If it is, you better pony up because he's bringing the kingdom through you. I thought y'all would be happy about that. I know y'all just still, still tired from the turkey. One generation, listen to this, one generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. I'm going to quote that. I'm going to steal that from Damon Thompson. One generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. This is what he says in Exodus, and I'm, I'm getting to Isaiah 9, but this is what he says in Exodus 9, or excuse me, Exodus 20, verse 4. He says this. This is when he's giving the Ten Commandments. He's going through the Ten Commandments. But on the one that says this, uh, Exodus 30, uh, put the 20, verse 4. Put the wrong uh, marker in my Bible. Exodus 20, verse 4. Listen to this. So he's talking about idols, and this is what he says. You must not make for yourself any, an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now listen to this. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even the children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. We don't hear that one a lot. Okay? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. I lay the sins. What are the sins? He's talking about those who reject him for other gods. That's what he's talking about, okay? So I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, and the entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But listen to this. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So for those who reject him for other gods, it affects up to the third and fourth generations. But for those who decide I'm going to follow Jesus, who love him and obey his commandments, he lavishes unfailing love for a thousand generations. Unbelievable. So one generation's compromise will be the next generation's captivity. One generation of don't sweat the small stuff has led to another generation of inherited big stuff. One generation of absent fathers creates a legacy of absent fathers. You can chase your, for example, career, or you can chase presence. I do not think you can do both. I think you can chase presence until your career follows. I do not think you can chase your career and think presence is going to follow. But one generation's standard holding will be the next generation's multiple freedom. One generation of standard bearers will be the next generation's freedom. I'm reading through Judges right now. And you see this over and over and over and over. When there's a generation who rejects God, the next generation rises up in captivity, enslaved. But when there is a judge who judges Israel correctly and brings them back into the fold, the next generation rises up in freedom. Over and over and over and over again. So why am I teaching this to a bunch of primarily young adults with no kids? There's some in here that have kids and are not young adults. But why, why do I teach this stuff? Because we've got to get this stuff before you become a dad, before you become a mom, and before you become a parent. 
You've, we've got to get this. We can't afford for people to play catch up after. You've got to get this on the front end. Maybe the Lord hasn't allowed you, and I'm not saying this prophetically, I'm saying this fatherly. Maybe the Lord hasn't allowed you to step into a relationship yet because you're not ready. And what do I mean by ready? I mean that that is not your God. That, that when you step into a relationship, you're not looking for somebody who's pretty. You're not looking, and that, that's a great thing, and you should probably think about that. But you're not looking for somebody who just checks all the, you're sure not looking for somebody that just goes to church. Because as we have seen, that don't usually work out right. Right? Well, man, they go to church. So does the devil. I'm just kidding. I mean, he does, but, well, not our church. He don't go to our church. But um, <laughs> I'd love for him to come to our church. I'd like to kick him in the teeth, but he won't come three, within three miles of this place. But, you know what I'm saying? Maybe, listen, listen, maybe you haven't stepped into the career that you've always wanted because you're not ready. Maybe you haven't gotten into the college that you want. I mean, fill in the blank. Maybe you aren't making the money that you want to make because you're not ready. That's okay. The Lord is in a season in your life, in my life, in all of our lives of realignment. Alignment is everything. Most of the time, let me say it like this. Most of the time when we think the Lord is being silent, and I know I preach the message on why the Lord is silent sometimes. So remove yourself from that. But most of the time when we think the Lord's being silent, he's not being silent. We've realigned or we've aligned ourselves away from the voice of the Lord. Okay? So if I whisper, which the Lord speaks a lot in whispers, if I whisper to you and you're standing right here facing me, you're going to hear what I'm saying. If you're aligned with what I'm saying, you're going to hear it. Right? But if you walk out in the hall, you put on headphones, and you turn up music as loud as possible, and I whisper at the same level in the same spot, you're not going to hear a word. So you might be out there saying, man, the Lord, Josh isn't speaking anymore. Still speaking, you just got a lot of noise in your ears that is drowning out the voice of the Lord. So a lot of, I, I, a lot of times when we say, man, I'm just walking through a silent season. No, you're walking through a noisy season. I'm, I'm actually, all of this, when I teach about family, all this, I'm teaching on the kingdom by teaching you devotion and consistency and identity and God's goodness and holiness and being a great father and mother, etc. Because the kingdom starts, as I just read, as something that seems totally insignificant so that it's not flashiness that grows it, but stewardship that grows it. Say this one more time. Why does, why does the kingdom start small? When you look at a mustard seed, the only way that mustard seed grows into a mustard bush, I guess, I don't know what the bush is called, um, grows into a mustard seed bush. Uh, but the only way that that grows is by somebody tending to it. You can just throw a seed in the ground and then say, all right, see you next year. Right? I've tried that. It don't work. I, if somebody knows where that is, tell me, because I'm terrible at planting and terrible at gardening. But you don't just throw a seed in the ground. You've got to tend it. You've got to make sure it has the right amount of water, the right amount of sunlight, the right amount of nutrients. And then at some point, as you steward that, it begins to grow. Right? So he begins the kingdom. He starts the kingdom in such a form that it requires stewardship on behalf of his image bearers to grow it into what it was designed. Jesus came, and when Jesus ascended after the cross, after the resurrection, the earth really looked no different than it did before Jesus came. I mean, let's be real. Five minutes after the resurrection, what was different other than there was Jesus walking around fully alive after he had just died? There wasn't a lot different. But 500 years later, the whole creation had shifted into a new age. So he rises again, 
and he takes the seed of resurrection, takes it to his disciples and to the 120 that are in the upper room and says, here's the seed, now steward it to the point that when you hand it off to the next generation, they steward it, and eventually it grows and becomes the greatest kingdom in the earth where revelations call that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ are brought into fulfillment. It's all about stewardship. So what is tithing? Why does he ask us for 10%? He doesn't need our money. It's not about your money because he doesn't need your money. He gave you the money in the first place. So tithing isn't about money. Tithing is about stewardship. So what you do with a little, I'm quoting Jesus now, what you do with a little will determine what you're given on the other side. So he allows us to steward 10% because what he actually desires is to give us 100%. So how we steward 10% will determine what he feels comfortable with giving us to steward beyond that. I can, I can see people right now, man, man, I better go tithe, actually. Yeah. I wasn't going to tithe today, but, you know. He's not, look, listen, he's not looking for good music and good speakers He's looking for devoted brides who are willingly, willingly living unknown by the masses to be ever known by the family. This is what he's looking for. He did, he did not choose me to lead this church because I'm the best pastor ever. That's not what he chose me for. He chose me because, and I'm not saying this out of pride, I'm saying this to give you an invitation to do the same. He chose me because no matter what life is thrown at me, at 5 a.m. every single morning, I'm right there waiting for the presence. That's it, that, the reason I'm on this stage today is because of that. It's not because I'm talented. It's not because I'm a good pastor. It's not because I'm a good speaker. It's not because I know a lot about the Bible. It's because he's looking for a devoted bride that will do whatever it takes to make sure that that little girl, for example, over in kids, is raised up living in her namesake, which is ruler. That's what he's looking for. Ministry, I believe, I hope. Ministry coming into 2021 and beyond is going to look drastically different. It has to. We're seeing pastors fall quicker than anybody's seen. Literally, every day you wake up and another pastor's falling. And I hate that. It's not, I don't, that doesn't bring me joy. I hate that. However, this should be a wake-up call saying, maybe this ain't it. Maybe pastors aren't supposed to be superstars. Maybe they're supposed to be fathers that are primarily unknown. The first, listen to this. The first, I promise I'm going to Isaiah 9, so I just keep telling y'all that so you know I know. I remember. Isaiah 9, I don't have a short message after this intro, so. Isaiah 9 is coming up. The first command given to humans in Genesis 1.28 is this. Okay, The first thing that God tells humans is to be fruitful and multiply. So be fruitful and multiply. And then the second command is to fill the earth and govern or subdue it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In theology, there's this uh, way of viewing the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that's called the law of first mentions. And what that means is, is in the Hebrew... Everything about the language is very meticulous. So if I was telling you, this week we taught Veda to you know, write the letter S, which I did, or it was last week, to ride her scooter and to eat broccoli, okay? If I told you those three things, order wouldn't matter. I'm just kind of telling you what we did, right? In the Hebrew, order greatly matters. And so when things appear first in a sequence, it's not just by coincidence, and it's not just casual. It's very pointed and on purpose. Okay? So when he gives them the command, be fruitful and multiply first, and then fill the earth and subdue it, he's not just passively saying, hey, just do these two things. What he's saying is, the way you're going to do the second thing is by being successful in doing the first thing. So he's saying, by being fruitful and multiplying, you're going to subdue the earth. This is what he's saying. And let me be clear. He's, not, he's talking about kids. He's literally talking about being fruitful and multiplying, having babies. This is what he's talking about. Okay? 
today, today, we see this as subdue the earth and then be fruitful and multiply. The way we're going to fill the earth is by subduing it. Ministry. Great, great. The way we're going to fill the earth is by subduing it. And Yahweh says, no, the way you're going to subdue the earth is by being fruitful. This is a massive, massive, massive shift. Okay? The first call ever given to man is family. That is the, the first call given to humankind is family. How was Yahweh going to subdue the creation? A man and a woman in family. Ironically, he doesn't raise up Adam and Eve. We know nothing about Adam and Eve's talents. We know nothing about their ability to preach. We know nothing about their ability to do great ministry. All we know about them is that they walked with Yahweh in the cool of the day. They were perfect image bearers of God. And they were the ones that through their seed came everybody else in creation, including you and I. That's all we know. Why is that all we know? Could it be it's all that that matters? I know, I, I'm getting this on tricky territory right here, okay? Could it be that Yahweh was saying the integrity that you have with those you're in relationship or family with is how we're going to bring creation back, not what you do? We say it all the time. This isn't a works-based gospel. We say that all the time, and yet... Everything that we plan out on how to get the gospel out is works-based. So either it's a works-based gospel or it's not. Either the gospel is about what you do or it's about who you are. The gospel spreads the same way it is. So if it's a gospel about, a gospel about who you are, then how are we going to spread the gospel? By living fully in who you are. Does this make sense? This isn't like super deep, like philosophical. I guess it is. But you know, you know what I'm saying? We've got to start just like tying these like, like things together in our brains and connecting them. The, the whole Old Testament is about one family, Israel. The entire Old Testament is about one family and God's faithfulness to that family. And then you move into the New Testament and God doesn't say, blow up the family, now it's everybody. He says, Gentiles, I'm inviting you into the family. It's still about family. Now we've been given access, as Ephesians says, to be adopted into sonship with Jesus. Why does it use that language? It uses adopted into sonship. It calls us sons and daughters of God. It calls us brides of Jesus. And we call him not great, omnipotent, distant father. I mean, you can do that if you want. But he says, call him Abba. The other translation is Papa. Why does it give us that language? Why does it label us as sons and daughters and not warriors? Why does it label us as brides and not let's go punch people in the teeth? Why does it label us as that? Because the whole goal of everything is unveiled in Genesis 1 when he says, be fruitful and multiply. And that's how we're going to subdue the earth. So Jesus comes and he becomes the firstborn among many, what? Brethren. That's King James. Brothers. All right. Y'all with me? So how was Yahweh going to subdue the creation? A man and woman and family. They literally, they literally were to have kids and grandkids, etc., until the whole earth was filled with one family. The same with Noah. Noah gets off the ark, and the only thing that's left in all of creation at that point is Noah and his family. And then what do we read? Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go back and read it. Why, not, why would he say that? It didn't work the first time. Because his plan all the way back from the beginning was family. You know, I, I grew up in, we grew up in an older church, and we called everybody brother and sister. I used to hate that. You know what I mean? Like, we had brother, you didn't even know people's names half the time. It was just brother so-and-so, brother. 
So the way you could get out, now I say, you know, hey, what's up, man, or, you know, whatever. And that's basically me saying, I don't remember your name. Um, but I do that. I do that when I do remember your name, too, so don't take that. But growing up, when you didn't know somebody's name, it was, you know, hey, brother, you know, hey, hey, sister, you know, all that stuff. And it's like, I don't even know who you are, but we're in church. Um, if you had a suit and tie on, you were a brother. And so uh, anyway... I used to hate that. And then growing up, it's like, now I know why we used to do that, because we were literally brothers and sisters. It was identifying as old and traditional and all that as it was. It was identifying that when we walk in this door, in these doors, we're not walking into a big group of just unfamiliar people, even if it was your first time. When we walked in the doors, we were walking into a family gathering, just like Thanksgiving. I remember Thanksgiving night, I was sitting there, and for me, I'm really emotional, and I'm really, you know, cry all the time and all that stuff. And this is what having a kid will do to you. And I'm sitting there, and I'm holding Veda. She's exhausted. And uh, it's Thanksgiving night, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking around the room, and it finally hits me that it was Thanksgiving. It was just like you know, the whole day we were just running around like chickens with a head cut off, all that stuff. And then we finally sit, and after we've eaten, and everybody's sitting around, I'm looking around the room, and I'm like, man, this is, like, this is what it's all about. Why, why does it take us? Why do we have to wait until one day a year to realize this is all that really matters? You know what I mean? But in that moment, it hit me, holy cow, this is all that really matters. Everybody that's losing their minds in the world today, if they found family, I promise you they would find their minds. You know what I mean? And literally everybody right now that is just chaotic, if they were brought into family, all the chaos would stop. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of unity for a reason. So today, today, I'm going to go into Isaiah 9, but I want to mention, the reason I kind of set all this up was to say this, that Jesus did not come to do away with the original plan. He came to invite us back into the original plan. So before we go into Christmas and the Christmas narrative that we're going to go through over the next few weeks, I want to fix our gaze on how to pull it into today. How do we take the Christmas narrative and pull it into 2020? By relentlessly pursuing the small stuff with the long term in mind. Here's how I kind of do this in my life just on a day-to-day basis. How will this decision affect, affect the next four generations? On any major decision that me or my wife make, I filter it through. How will this decision affect the next four generations? And if I get to the end of those four generations and it looks like it's going to affect them negatively, we're not doing it. I don't care how much it makes sense today. Right? Because as a believer, I've got to have the next generations in mind. You and I both. No matter how young you are. All y'all that are young, we've got to have the future generations in mind. Okay? We have nothing but time. The command of the Lord is accuracy, accuracy through being slow and steady. 400 years of silence birthed Jesus. It was not quick, but it was right. Let me just give you this last thing, and I'm going to go into Isaiah 9. Small things plus time equals big things. Small things plus time equals big things. Somebody doesn't get to the decision of making some crazy, life-altering, sinful decision overnight. They don't wake up one day and say, man, I just want to go cheat on my wife. They don't do that. It's over time, there's a lot of small compromises that seem insignificant until you get to the point where they've all added up into a big decision. And this is why I say that. Isaiah 9 I'm going to break this down, and then we're done. Isaiah 9. I was reading this in the Hebrew. I wasn't reading the Hebrew. I was breaking down the Hebrew words. And wait till you hear this, okay? I'm just going to read a few verses right here. Isaiah 9, verse 1. <clears throat> Never the, and I'm, I'm in the NLT. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled And there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now listen to this right here. It's going to sound familiar. 
the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boot this is one of my favorite verses. I love this. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. That's my favorite verse for spiritual warfare. My favorite one. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. Why? Because they're useless. And they're useless under this reality. For unto us, or for, let me say in the NLT, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice, fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment or zeal, maybe in your Bible, of the Lord of heaven armies will make this happen. Now check this out. I'm going to break this down. Y'all just track with me just for a second. I'm going to get real like deep and then we're done. Okay, verse 2. I read this in the Hebrew and literally was just blown away by what this verse said, okay? So verse 2, chapter 9. This is what it's, I'm going to break down what these words mean, and then we'll kind of revisit it, and that's it. Okay, so the word for people means nation or members of one's people, okay? Uh, walk means to go, to walk, to live a manner of life, to die, to walk or go by way of, okay? Darkness means obscurity, darkness, or check this out. This is going to be really key. Here's what this word means, secret place. The word for see means to see, perceive, consider, to have vision for, to look at, to gaze at, to discern, to behold, to look at each other face to face, and to give attention to. This is why the Hebrew is so much deeper than the English. One word means a million different things. Great, the word great, is the word for either God himself or great. The word light means light or Jehovah's light as Israel's light. Okay, To live means to dwell, remain, to sit or abide. Dark is shadow of death, and it's the same word used in Psalm 23 when David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear nothing. That's what this word is. Also used all throughout the book of Job. Okay, last couple of words. Um, the word for land means earth. It means country or territory, piece of ground, or place where people dwell, and then light is the same word I just mentioned. Okay, so let me read this one more time and break it down. The people who walk in darkness... Okay, the people who walk in darkness, let me say it like this, the people who live by way of the secret place is the Hebrew, one of the ways the Hebrew is. Those who live by or walk by the secret place will see a great light, okay? That word for see, to have vision for, to discern, and light is literally could be used for God, the face of the Lord. So those who live by the secret place will have vision for Jehovah. 2020, year clear vision. Okay, for those who live in a deep, a land of deep darkness, deep darkness, or those who live in a land of the shadow of death, a light will shine. I read this this week, and as I'm breaking this down, 
I start thinking about, honestly, this year. And this is why I say we need Christmas, and it's going to be more to us this year than ever before. Because what Isaiah is prophesying is he's looking ahead to a people that have gone through 400 years of silence. It's about as dark as it's ever been in the earth. If David thought he was walking through the valley of the shadow of death, at least the Lord was still speaking. This is a people who 10 plus generations in have never heard the voice of the Lord, have never heard a prophet speak the voice of the Lord, and only know of what has been spoken in the past. That's it. Okay? And he looks ahead and says, For those who walk in that, it will become a secret place for them to see what no eye has seen. It will become a secret place for them to see the light that they were not seeing before. The nation who lives by the secret place will have vision for Jehovah's light. And he goes in after this and says, you will enlarge the nation of Israel. How is he going to do that? By bringing others from the outside in, us. And he begins this, just this amazing prophetic word that ends with a child is born. Now think about hearing this. Think about this. That your Israel, at this point, you're going into slavery. You've turned away from the Lord. Things look real awful. And all of a sudden, Isaiah, this trusted prophet, is coming to you and he's saying, all of us who walk through a land of darkness, all of us who live through the valley of the shadow of death, which would have clicked with them because of what David had spoken in Psalm 23. So he's lining all this up. And he says, for all of us, we're going to see a light. And we're going to be saved. And he's going to break the yoke of slavery. Here's how he's going to do it. You ready? A child is born to us. A son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called, and then, this is where it gets, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. The reason that when Jesus comes, they're so confused about who Jesus is is because even through all of this, they're expecting, as I've taught before, especially at Easter, they're expecting a warrior to come out of this line. They're expecting that the Messiah is going to be a great warrior like David. And when the Messiah comes, and he's not warring against Rome, he's bringing all of the people of Israel and the Gentiles both into a government of peace. He's not come to fix the current government. He's come to replace, over time, the current government with a brand new government that will never end called peace. And as he's doing this, they're confused because they're looking for a warrior with a sword, and instead they have a man with a mouth and a word that pierces to bone and marrow, divides it, and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. They're looking for someone to come take care of Rome. Yahweh's coming to look for a family to reign in the earth. Did you know that a few centuries later, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman government? So he fixed Rome, but the way he fixed Rome is through a family stewarding generation after generation after generation what seemed insignificant. So here's what I want to tell you today. Matt, go ahead and come up here. Actually, worship. Y'all go ahead and come up here because we're going to sing one more song at the end. Um, Reckless Love and Mary, did you know? Um, but here's what I meant as, as he's coming up here. I just, this is what I wanted to kind of deliver today. Coming out of Thanksgiving, going into Christmas, is that we have an opportunity, and I mentioned this in worship. We have the opportunity to view this year as a chaotic, crazy, dark, awful year like everybody else does, or we have the ability to look at this year and say, hello. <laughs> or we have the ability to look at this year and say, for those who walk in darkness, they will be positioned to see a great light. For those who walk by way of the secret place, they 
those will have vision to see Jehovah's light. The small stuff that I was talking about earlier is crucial, crucial in what he desires to do, not just in the coming years, but in the coming generations. It is crucial for us to have vision for, to have a a perception for when Yahweh is moving in what everybody else looks at as insignificant. When Yahweh's moving in this. So when I see one of you, like for example, Mackenzie, I'm gonna point you out. Mackenzie came to me one day and said, hey, I just read through the Bible. And I know you're not, you don't do this for notoriety. So, but I read through the Bible. That hit me. I mean, we've seen a lot of great stuff. We, as a church, we've seen people healed. We've seen people set free. But there was something about that that was just like, she's get, we, that's the small stuff. That she wasn't okay with just knowing the Bible or knowing about the Bible. She was like, I want to know this for myself and dug in and read the Bible. Let me point out, uh, remind me your name, man, little man. Gabriel, that's right, Gabriel, um, holding his Bible. They came to me, and I don't want to make you cry. They came to me a couple, uh, I guess a month ago, and, uh, and I was torn up telling Jordan and Ellington about this. But anyway, y'all came to me and was like, hey, we don't have a Bible. Could we have one? And I called my spiritual father the week, the week after, and I said, I don't know what that was, but generations are starting to be affected by this. I mean, how many kids are walking around saying, hey, I don't have a Bible, can I have one? And not only that, he's got it right here in his arms. A kid. I mean, th- those, those little things are what everybody else would just kind of glaze over and wait until the big, huge, explosive thing comes up. And I'm telling you, this is the seed for the big, explosive thing. But the big, explosive thing is not what we think. And I've been saying that for years. It's we're going to have kids growing up in families that would not have had a present father had they not come into an encounter with the Lord that called them back into alignment of who they were designed to be, which is not a career, which is not a businessman, which is a father that happens to do business. We're going to have kids that might have grown up on drugs, that might have grown up looking at stuff on the computer they shouldn't look at, being possessed by all the stuff the world's possessed, but because they came into an encounter with the Lord in a place that's focused on the small things, they're rising up saying, I wish I had a Bible so I could read what you were talking about. Can I have one? I mean, this is huge. This is huge. And yet, it's insignificant. And that's what Christmas is. I mean, we, we celebrate thousands of, at this point, of years later, a baby being born in a feeding trough. We celebrate it. We decorate. I've been decorated for months, right? But we, we, we celebrate it. Hopefully we get some bark out of it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, man, that's the, I'm looking forward to it every day. But we celebrate it. Why? Why do we celebrate it? Because what started insignificant has made way for us to find freedom. I'm saved and you're saved today because of what was laying in a feeding trough 2,000 years ago. What if, what if the small decisions that you are making on a daily basis are actually so significant that 2,000 years from now, they're going to look back and say, had they not made that decision, had they not lived like that, I wouldn't be free today indeed. I mean, we think, Mary, did you know? Did you know that your baby boy, like, did she know when she was holding this baby? She knew it was the Son of God, but did she know? Did she know that three days after being brutally killed, that he would walk out of a tomb and leave every single person that comes in contact with him, leave all of them resurrected in his path? Did, did she know that? Did you know that the kid in your household, I'm talking to a lot of people watching this that are parents online, did you know that the kid in your household and my household would one day walk on water. I've tried walking on water. I haven't done it yet. I might one day. I haven't done it yet. But who's to say that I'm not going to have a daughter that knows how? Not just knows how, that does. 
that's so conquered in the secret place because they saw dad and mom conquered in the secret place that she dares to believe that she can do things that I couldn't even do. We're praying for coronavirus to be cured. What if she rises up and there's no more pandemics ever because of such a holiness and intimacy that rests on a group of people because of a ruler raised up in a household right? This is so. This is burning on me, and y'all know that because I teach on it almost every week. I say legacy all the time and intimacy all the time, and the reason is it's not because I don't have any bigger things to teach on. I do. I would love to teach you on some big things, but but we would miss all the small things that actually call the big things into existence if we were to do that. So I'm not concerned with preaching tweetable messages. Most most people in here don't have tweet Twitter. Okay, not concerned about that. I'm concerned about you and I living in the words that are released. That's all I'm concerned about. And so as we go into the song, Reckless Love, I, I just like, as we're singing this, I want this to hit us in a different way. Like I want this to hit us in a way that where it's, there's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up coming after me. Jesus considered equality with God, not something to be grasped. But he humbled himself even by becoming someone who committed himself to death on a cross, on a cross. And God exalted him to the highest place and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. So as we sing this, I just want this to hit us. Let this kick us into the Christmas season. Let this kick us into a devotional season that calls the coming of Jesus into reality, into our lives right now. Y'all go ahead and get ready. Let's sing.